standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let His praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing. I'm standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fears assail. By the living word of God I shall prevail. I'm standing on the promises of God. I'm standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. I'm standing, standing, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ, my Lord. I'm bound to Him eternally by love's strong cord. Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword. I'm standing on the promises of God. Yes, I'm standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. I'm standing, standing, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fall. I'm listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior.
right, it's our choice here in the good and the bad. Sing it. In the good and the bad times, in the shadow and the sunlight, it's my joy for my whole life to praise your name. out and seeing God's people testify, testify, right, that you are choosing to trust in his faithfulness in the good times and in the bad. And man, this representation, are, it's everything, right? We can rejoice in his awesomeness and all the good things. And he hears our cry through the sorrow, through the difficulty, through the unanswered prayers through the waiting, right church? He hears it all and he's faithful through it all. He is faithful. Do you believe that church? Can we continue singing about his faithfulness? Yeah, all right, let's do it together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand hath. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. I see. 
today, Lord, and we just ask today, Lord, that you would hear us, that you would hear the truth of what we sing. The Lord, as we say it as well, it doesn't mean that everything is peaceful, it doesn't mean that everything is calm, but the Lord, that it means that we are good with being here with you. It is good to be here with you. It is good to be in your presence. It is good to be in the presence of those who you call to bring together, Lord, as our church family, people we know love us and care for us and support us. Father, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the assurance, Lord, of your presence. Thank you for the freedom to sing and the opportunity to worship this morning. Lord, we pray you just be with us today. Be with us as we hear your voice continue to speak to us. Lord, may the message you laid on Pastor Brian's heart be something that speaks to the very depths of who we are. May we hear your truth and hear your reassurance and hear your calm and your peace and your comfort in those words. Guide us now through the remainder of our service, Lord. Thank you for all that we have because of you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Earlier this summer, on my way to Nazarene Youth Conference, we were flying out of Pittsburgh. And as I arrived at the airport, I've been to Pittsburgh Airport many times and kind of knew where I wanted to park and found out that they were undergoing a lot of construction at the Pittsburgh Airport. Where I usually parked wasn't available. And so I, wanted, I don't like to pay a lot of money for airport parking, so I kind of found the, the next lot down that I could park at that was reasonable for me, and I pull into the parking lot. Once you go through the gate and you get your ticket, then they give you the sign, shuttle not available. So you're parked in this economy lot, which, by the way, is a little bit further away than what some parking lots are. And I found myself parking on this very hot July day, and I parked my truck, and I realized this is going to get tricky got my suitcase, I've got my backpack, I've got an extra carry-on bag with some supplies we were taking down to donate. Then I had two boxes of, of t-shirts and hats that were for our group that had not yet been distributed. And I found myself wondering, how am I going to do this? I got a little creative and I put, put two bags on my shoulders and put a bag up on top of my suitcase and ended up having a box up on this arm and I'm kind of lumbering, laboring across the parking lot. And here's the best part. I'm one, I'm, I got this quirk. Um, when, when I, I don't love ironing clothes, but when I do iron a shirt, I hate to then see that shirt then get wrinkled. Right? Anybody, anybody else feel like that? So if you ever see me come to church Sunday morning, you'll see me bring my shirt with me because I hate ironing a shirt, putting it on and getting in the car, putting a seatbelt on and getting said shirt wrinkled. It's just, that's just one of the things I just don't like. It's kind of weird about me. So I will bring my shirt to church and put it on. I had my shirt with me at the airport. I hadn't yet changed. It was hot out. I was going to wait until I got inside. So I'm walking across the parking lot with my two suitcases, two things on my back, a box on top and a box on my shoulders with my hanger in my mouth, carrying my suit like this. Because I was too cheap to park closer. And I'm sure I was quite the sight, dragging my baggage with me into the terminal. Fortunately, um, that Pittsburgh has a nice moving sidewalk that kind of runs parallel to some of the parking lots. I was able to, after a few minutes, work my way there, where I was not too cheap to buy one of those luggage carts and yank that thing out and put all my bags on there and get it to where it needed to be. Good reminder that we all carry bags with us everywhere we go. We all do. Some are good. Some are filled with memories, with people that we love. Uh, there's things that we carry that are important. We, we carry loved ones. We, we, we can carry real burdens. There's responsibilities, things that we should and need to carry. But the beautiful thing about those bags is that God helps us carry them. There's also bags we carry that God wants us to let go of. 
Those bags that have um, the hurts in our lives, that represent the wounds, the difficult seasons, uh, the, the, those physical, emotional bags, the, those mental, spiritual bags that uh, aren't so good, the ones that allow bitterness to creep in and to take root in our lives, the, the ones that tend to weigh us down, the bags that we use to make excuses when it comes to moving forward or being who it is that God wants us to be, that his grace enables us to be. We tend to cling to them. Before we know it, they become part of who we are. Uh, we, we become associated with. When people envision us, they envision us with our bags around us or beside us. It identifies or even defines in some cases who we are. The church, there's good news. While we all have baggage and we all carry it. It doesn't have to be that way. God invites us to bring our bags to him. Those things that are painful. It's not to say that they don't matter. He's not trying to dismiss them. He's trying to provide healing in spite of them. He's trying to use them for his glory. He wants to add to your story to make, to shape, and to call you something else. That we're not defined by what has happened or by how we've been wounded by how we've been hurt, rather we become defined by the one who lovingly lifts those bags off of our shoulders, if we're willing to let them go. Baggage, <laughs> what divides? It splits families, pits brother against brother. Baggage can hurt marriages. Baggage can lead to mistrust. It can isolate. Baggage can be used to hide wounds for certain, but the wound is still there. It can prevent healing. It, it, it can be used to, to carry our hurts that we never let go. Our baggage, well, it's not meant for us to lug behind it. Grace, when it entered the store, and entered the picture, helps us deal with baggage. A few months ago, I was, was walking with uh, some friends through a challenging season. And as I listened to one's problems, and then I met with another person listening to, to their problems and their challenges, and there was this division in their relationship. What I come to realize, and you, you kind of pick this up after uh, 20 years of, of listening and walking and helping and counseling and being there for people, is you, you've heard the old adage, there's two sides to every story. Well, I've come to realize there's usually three. There's the two sides, and there's a side in the middle that's typically where the truth tends to fall. But there's a little bit of truth on each side. What we find, if, if we pay attention, is that often the things that we see, the situations we go through, the struggles that we kind of have to navigate, we view them from our own perspective, our own viewpoint. We look at them through our own lenses. They're often clouded or obscured or blocked by the baggage we carry. And as I was listening and praying, God kind of revealed something to me that's kind of profound, but yet incredibly simple. How often we approach a situation or a conflict or a source of division or hurt or woundedness, bitterness, and all we see is our own baggage, failing to realize that everybody else has their baggage as well. And we don't always know what they're going through. We don't always recognize the reasons for the choices they might make, the things that they might do or not do. We don't understand what's happened in their past or is happening in their present that might be impacting them physically or mentally or spiritually. And grace becomes that glue that helps us, if you will, still hold things together when we even don't understand what's going on with others. Grace helps us kind of approach relationships in a way that only God can help us approach. Because again, our view is obscured. Our view is limited by the stuff that we carry. And God invites us to let some of that go. In Scripture, there's a couple characters that I tend to relate to. Uh, one in the New Testament is Peter. I'm sorry to admit, or maybe I'm not sorry to admit, that I'm often a lot like him. Uh, speak before I think sometimes, or act out before putting all the thought into it. But yet I, I want to kind of be there. I want to be out there. I want to be who Jesus wants me to be. But sometimes it's, it's okay to be wise and to think about, reflect on what is you're saying, what is you're doing. But in the Old Testament, there, there's a man that I don't like to relate to, but I probably do in more ways than I care to admit. His name is Jacob. Jacob had a lot of baggage. We're going to spend the next several weeks talking about his life and what we can learn from all that he went through, all that he carried, 
and how each bag that he carried, God used to shape and to mold and to bring him to the place where he could finally become who God wanted him to be. It took him a while. Sometimes it takes us a while. But God is patient. And God is still waiting for many of us to let go of the bags we're carrying that we could become who he wants us to be. A little bit of background. We, we know that uh, Jacob's father's name was, I, was Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise to, to Abraham. We all know the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. But really, Abraham didn't have many physical sons. Uh, God had promised Abraham, if you can pick up your stuff and follow me, I'm going to take you to the land I promised and set apart for you. And you're going to become the father of many nations. And, and Abraham's like, well, what are you talking about? I don't have any children. And God made Abraham a promise. Look at the stars. That's how many of your descendants will number. And shortly after, he and Sarah welcomed a son named Isaac, this child of promise, and that God was going to continue to do what he wanted to do. But Abraham was the patriarch, if you will, of the, of the family of God, will become the people of God. His son Isaac would, would have, have a son, have two sons. Actually, Isaac, he kind of he doubled it all at once, had twins, Esau and Jacob. We'll talk about their story here in just a moment, but Jacob would have a, a very interesting life, so some of some of it brought about by his own choices. There were consequences of his choices. And we find Jacob journeying. Uh, if we could pull out the map, you would see he would be all over the place, literally. He ends up at a place when he's on his way back to finally uh, confront to meet his brother. He meets God at a place he names Peniel. We'll talk about Peniel in a couple weeks. Peniel's a life-changing place, not just for Jacob, but I believe for us. Jacob spends the night wrestling with God comes face to face with God, and he wrestles with God all night long. In this encounter, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel literally means one who wrestles with God. God's people would take on this name, Jacob's name, to define themselves, the Israelites, the nation, the people of Israel, the people who wrestle with God. And I believe this morning that some of you have been for a long time, and you are even in this moment wrestling with God. And that's not a very bad place to be. That can be a great place to be. We put ourselves in Jacob's position. But what we also find in this encounter is up until this moment, God had been known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He was the God of Moses and Joshua, or would become come that later on. There's a lot of people in history that, that could be used to define who God is. But God of takes on Jacob's name, just as Jacob and his people take on the name that God gave them, and God becomes the God of Israel. Hmm. Why would he choose Jacob's life to be defined or to be recognized as? And I can't help but think that maybe in Jacob's life, God sees the most that he can teach us, the life that we can most relate to. See, Jacob struggles with insecurity, with deceit and mistrust. Jacob wanders and journeys through the wilderness. He has doubts and questions and fears. He, he has to come to one, at some point in his life where he has to confront the mess that he's made and deal with the consequences that come with that. There's a lot we can learn. There's a lot we can relate to. There's a lot of Jacob in each one of us. Genesis chapter 25 is where I'm going to spend some time today. Verses 21 through 34, and today I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I don't use that a lot, but, but I like how it reads. I just like how sim, simplistic it is and how visual uh, we, we can find the story in the New Living Translation this week. Beginning in verse 21, we read, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. So up at this point, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, were living out the, the same um, kind of story that, that his father Abraham had lived out. And God responds to, to Isaac's petitioning, to reaching out. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer in, in verse 21, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. If I'm going to give Abraham one son, I'm going to give you two, God says. But we read in verse 22, this isn't like a normal pregnancy. Yay, you're pregnant, we're going to have babies. And I don't know what the reveal would have looked like back then if you do two little blue balloons or, or, or two blue uh, confetti cannons or, or, or smoke balls, I don't know. But she's having twins. You think this would be an exciting time? But in verse 22, uh, we see this really powerful word in Scripture, but. Every time we see the word but in Scripture, there's this change in direction. Things aren't as what, we, that, what they should be. But the two children 
struggled with each other in her womb. Now, we're not just talking about normal kicking and moving around and jostling. There's something going on inside of her that's just not right. And Rebecca knows that this isn't right. These guys are fighting. I got little kids at home. You understand? They'll be sitting in the car and things aren't going well. His hand just crossed onto my side of the seat. <clears throat> so I'm going to make put my leg over on his side of the seat. You know how it is. And these kids kind of jostle back and forth. It's kind of normal in a way, but yet they, they've got some lessons to learn. They're fighting inside the womb. And she's burdened by this. So Rebecca went to ask the Lord about it, Scripture tells us. And she asked the question that I think every one of us has answered at some point in our life. Why is this happening to me? Why is this struggle happening inside of me? Have you ever asked that? Maybe your reasoning for asking has certainly been different. But I think we've all asked God that question at some point in our lives. Lord, why is this happening to me? A little bit of background to help explain the why. We know in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. We read about the days of creation, how God stood back and says, oh, it is good. That's good. Good job. That, that is nice. And then sin enters the world, and, and, and the fall of man kind of takes place. Adam and Eve choose to, to pursue their own desires instead of be obedient to God. Sin with its consequences results in them getting kicked out of the garden. Sin spirals, and, and mankind continues to get worse until finally in the days of Noah, God's had enough. Because I'm just going to wipe it all out. I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. I'm going to start over. Moses, you and your family, since you've been obedient, I'm going to spare you and anyone else who might choose to believe. Of course, we know that no one else did. And through Noah's family, we see eventually the line of Abraham come about. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see God, uh, as he's called Abraham to come and follow, God also enters into Abraham with this beautiful thing called covenant. Now, covenant was important in, in these early biblical days because this was a culture that had no police force. There was no law and order. So the, the means of protection that you could have is, is the covenant relationships you had with your neighbors. And you would enter into covenant with them, and you would agree to support one another, that you would be there for each other. You would defend one another under attack. You would go through life together. Now, the idea of biblical covenant is a pretty deep one, and I'm not going to get into all the nuances today because we're going to come back and talk about that later but, but covenant, in it, covenant is a very real thing. But we also begin to see this practice of restoration, this idea of promise. Even in the garden, God had promised a Messiah. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that God, he was going to be a blessing. And, and through Isaac, who became the son of promise, who marries Rebekah, whose grandfather Nahor was Abraham's brother, and we see this family unit begin to gel, and Isaac and Rebekah would then have two sons. And you have to ask yourself, which of these sons is the line of the Messiah going to continue? Who of them is the child of promise? We see them wrestling in the womb, jostling, if you will, for position. Because they're going to figure out which one's going to come out first. To the point where Sarah or Rebekah asks herself, Lord, why is this happening to me? same struggle goes on inside each of us. See, one would be the child of promise, the line of the Messiah. The other would be a child who would live life for themselves. That same battle still rages within us, the line that leads us to Jesus or that battle that leads us to the deeper part of who we truly desire to be according to our sinful nature. Well, the Lord answers her. He says, the sons in your womb will be two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. Your older son will serve the younger. When the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. Now, this explanation would have been pretty disturbing to Rebecca at this time. See, this isn't how things were done. Culturally, by law or, or by custom, there was a system that determined family hierarchy. It was called the law of primogeniture. And primogeniture is the right of the firstborn legitimate child to inherit the parent's estate. In most contexts, it means the inheritance of the firstborn son. Now, the first, this would be called agnatic primogeniture. I'm sure you really wanted to know that. But it can also mean by the firstborn daughter, which is referred to as matrilineal primogeniture. You've learned more about primogeniture than you ever thought you would need to. You may have always understood it. You used to know what it was called. We still see it in our world today. 
in the case of monarchies or kings and princes and princesses. It's seen throughout all of history. Being the firstborn matters. It brought order to, to a chaotic world. It had legal standing. We see God give Moses instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 12. It speaks to primogeniture. It's even biblical. But God tells Rebekah, your older son will serve the younger. God basically is turning the tradition upside down. Isn't that what he does all throughout his word? He turns the establishment upside down? Because when man is left in charge, what do we do? We mess it up. We drag our bags behind us. <coughs> we get things out of order. And God has to come in and turn things upside down. Because he wants us to experience life where he carries the bags. This conflict in her womb was just a precursor of things to come, a foreshadowing, if you will, of conflict that we all still live out in our lives today. And finally, the day of the birth came. <laughs> Imagine a little bit of excitement, a little bit of anxiousness, I'm sure, as you're carrying two. I've never carried two. Praise the Lord. I don't know what that's like. Some of you do. You, some of you have carried one. That's enough. I, I, I don't even want to imagine. It's okay. I've been there watching. That's good enough for me. She's given birth to twins. Verse 25, the, the first one, the who, who gets in position first? The first one was very red at birth, covered with thick hair like a fur coat. David Busick likens Esau to Chewbacca. Out pops Chewbacca. <laughs> Crying out Chewbacca. I don't know, it wasn't very good, but you kind of bear with me, you know? Can you just imagine Rebecca looking at her first son? Put him back. <laughs> no, my goodness, that's not what I had in mind. Just kidding. Uh. He had hair only a mother could love. So they named him Esau, which literally means red, hairy guy. <laughs> As Esau was coming out, the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. They named him Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. They really could have used a baby name internet site back then, couldn't they? Red hairy guy and heel grabber was what these boys would become known as for the rest of their lives. Names have power, don't they? Names tell a story. Red hairy guy. Well, as the boys grew up, verse 27, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You wonder, did God's answer to Rebekah's prayer influence how she looked at and treated her sons? We don't know that for sure. But we know that Jacob's temperament kind of left him close to, to the, the encampment, if you will, close to the tents. I'm sure because of that, he spent more time with his mom. And they've developed this relationship. See, she knew what God had said, that the, the older would serve the younger. Is she watching out for him? We know that she is, as we'll talk more about next week. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. He would see their differences in this encounter show up in a very profound and powerful way. Esau, the outdoors, a hunter, not mentioned much in the Old Testament, but this was a sport to him. He enjoyed it. Like, just like Davy Crockett out in the woods. He was the king of the wild frontier. Anybody remember that song? Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. We'll come back and talk about Davy Crockett here in a few weeks. But Esau was the king of the wild frontier. And if he was the king of the wild frontier, then Jacob would have been king of the tents, king of the kitchen. It's really not what men in this day did, but Jacob did it. Temperament kind of led to that. He was mild, which doesn't imply blameless. He was a little bit more um, quiet, loved by his mother. But regardless uh, of their differences, it doesn't reveal itself profoundly until they have this encounter. You have to wonder... What had, Rebecca, what had Rebecca told Jacob? Was Jacob always looking for an opportunity? 
to overstep his brother? Was he kind of waiting for that chance? Did he kind of take what his mother told him to heart? The parents are adding friction to this relationship by playing favorites. Isaac liking Esau because of the, the food that he'd bring back. And I get it. You want to talk about holy smokes. This was the very first version, and Isaac liked being a part of that. Rebecca loving Jacob, maybe because of God's declaration, wanting her son to succeed, maybe because she just they had more in common. Ironically, of the two, what we probably find is that Jacob was probably more like Isaac than Esau was. Regardless, we see this already divided relationship. When one looks at the big picture, it's easy to see how things are setting up for a battle. This struggle that started in the womb is continuing. This is a broken relationship. It's probably never really been together. Esau was a man with no self-control. He was crude, rude, arrogant, self-centered. Well, Jacob, probably you can envision it, was, was coddled, not used to manual labor, Desperate, though, for acceptance, for his father's approval, insecure. Can you see the bags already forming behind them? They're there. Maybe they're not real big yet, but they're there. They're already started to drag them behind them, these insecurities, these sense of unknown, the sense of belonging, the sense of position. The dysfunction describes this family. On the surface, the neighbors might think everything is fine. This is the family of promise. One of these two boys is the line of the Messiah. They're living out this story that God had told Abraham, this promise, this covenant that he'd made. Then we begin to realize how one took it seriously and one really couldn't care less. Verse 30, Esau, after coming home from hunting, says to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. And here Jacob sees an opportunity. All right, Jacob replied. But trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, Esau says in verse 32. What good is my birthright to me now? He'd been hunting all day. I'm sure he was tired and famished. Whether he brought something home or not, we don't know. But he comes home and he smells something good. We've got some good cooks in our church, and I have smelled some of your wares, and, and I, I can relate and understand. I, I have tasted your chocolate chip cookies, and they are good. But here comes Esau. He's famished. Have you ever have kids come to you in the middle of the afternoon? They just had lunch an hour and a half ago. Mom and Dad, I'm starving. I'm just dying of starvation. They're just over dramatic and exaggerated, just over the top. And maybe, maybe it was your wives, it's been your husbands who says that all the time. I don't know. But we've heard it said before. We understand the hyperbole that's being expressed in this moment. Esau's not really dying of starvation. He's just hungry. And what we're about to find out is who Esau really is, what's really important to him. We're also about to see that the elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor in Esau's mind. In the Hebrew text, the verse 32 literally reads, quick. Give me a gulp of that red, red stuff, that red stuff there. That's how it literally translates. Give me a gulp of that red, red stuff, that red stuff there. And here we get a glimpse inside of the type of person that Esau was or, or wasn't. See, there's this implied deficiency. We, we see it in the, in the text itself. See, we see repetition. Sometimes in Scripture, it's used for emphasis. If you see a word used twice, repeated twice, it's emphasizing that word. If you see it three times, it's typically used as filler because we can't think of anything else to say. And all, Eli, all Esau can say in, in his hunger and desperation is give me a gulp of that red, red stuff, that red stuff there. He can't think of anything else to say. He can't think of to call it what it is. It's just tomato soup. We also see in the words he used the type of person that he was. The word gulp, it's a Hebrew word, la'at. And the word la'at, I don't bring emphasis to this other than to point out and to help us understand what's really happening here. The word la'at means to swallow greedily or to devour. It's the only time in all of the Old Testament that we see this Hebrew word la'at used is in this encounter between Esau and Jacob. Now, we do see it in other uh, Hebrew writings, in other rabbinical teachings, but every time that it's used in other writings and teachings, it's in reference to feeding an animal. 
So the fact that Esau would use that word in this instance shows us the animalistic cult character that he was deep down. Give me a gulp of that red, red stuff. That red stuff there. I'm sure at this point you've decided you're much more like Jacob than you are Esau. Let me turn the story upside down and ask some really difficult questions for us this morning. Might we be more like Esau than we care to admit? Let's dig a little bit deeper and hopefully you'll understand what I'm getting at. If you haven't realized it yet, Esau is raw, he's uncouth, he's gruff, he lacks manners, he's, he, he's overwhelmed and uncontrolled by his appetites, the things that he wants right now. Self-control is not an attribute that he has. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, Esau is described as godless, as immoral, as profane. His name's stuck. It doesn't tell a complimentary tale of who he was as a person. Now, as unrefined as Esau is, Jacob is sly. He's calculating. Esau has a need, and Jacob sees an opportunity. Verse 33, Jacob said, First you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then he got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Kind of like, let's make a deal, comes on TV. All right, you hungry? Okay. Give me your rights, your birthright, and I'll give you some red, red stuff. Studying this helps us come to the realization and properly understand what's going on. When we look at this deal, so to speak, your birthright for this bowl of soup, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, that's just laughable. That, that is so ridiculous. Seriously, Esau, you would, do, you would trade your birthright for a bowl of soup? Why would Jacob even suggest such a lopsided, irrational proposition? Because he knew his brother. <laughs> he knew who Esau was. He knew how shallow and impulsive Esau was, how he was so used to getting what he wanted. And Jacob took advantage of Esau in this moment. A bowl of stew for my birthright? Your birthright was significantly valuable. The firstborn was given special status, the first fruits of all of the crops. The firstborn was sacred. He, he got the first of the flocks. The firstborn was considered to be a possession of God, second to only the head of the family. It came with responsibilities, but also with privileges. You got two times the inheritance. This was a big deal. Trade all of this for this bowl of soup, a gulp of soup. Esau agreed. He took an oath, this legally binding oath. He eats his soup and he leaves without saying a word. In this moment, there's no regret. You kind of wonder, wow, what kind of person was he? His birthright became intangible in this moment of where his immediate hunger intersected with his pleasing, good-tasting food. Sounds ridiculous. Almost unbelievable or incomprehensible. I mean, how in the world could Esau do that? I don't know if you see the correlation between him and us today. But here's the truth. Trading is still going on. Lopsided, irrational trades. Except now we're trading our spiritual birthright. Our, our spiritual inheritance for worldly soup. It happens every day. Temporary pleasure or, 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 or temporary complacency. Or we, we give in and we gulp down and we feed our addictions. We, we feed our highs. We, we feed our feelings. We feed our misplaced priorities. We long for the tangible things that we think we need or we can't live without or the things that we think we deserve. Every day we're trading our spiritual birthright for a gulp of red, red stuff. Because we can't control ourselves. We just can't say no. We can't be patient. We can't wait on what God has for us. And every time we do, we just put something else into the bags that we carry behind us. They get heavier, they get heavier, they get heavier. Many are throwing away their birthright for some red stuff even now. 
You're making decisions about the rest of your day or what the rest of your week might look like. You're holding on to bitterness and hurt and, and things that God wants you to let go of because you think that it's just. You think that it's fair. And, and God wants to bring us freedom. He wants to bring us help. He wants to bring healing into our lives. And church, I share this not to bring conviction, but to, to bring hope into your life. You don't have to carry your stuff. God wants to take it. We've got to be willing to let it go. We've got to be willing to be a little bit patient and to quit chasing after the red stuff and chase after him. We're trading precious things that should be untouchable. We're trading them for temporary, for bland, and for worthless things because we want it now. Look at Esau's words. Quick, so I can gulp it down. I don't know about you, I've, I've driven by Krispy Kreme when that, when that hot donut sign's lit up. I can down one of those in two bites. I've been there. I get it. There's things in this world that they taste good, they look good, they're enticing. We think that's where fulfillment is found. We think that's where our lives are going to be made complete. We chase after the things of this world, the people of this world, because we think it's going to make us feel okay. And all we're doing is adding to the bags that we carry behind us. And we ask ourselves, Lord, why is this happening to me? God says, I will satisfy your appetites. We've been talking about holiness for these last several months together. Holiness is about just letting go of our stuff so there's more room for him. The whole idea of baggage is coming to this place where we recognize why there's not room for him in our lives. Because of the things that we carry behind us, things that have happened, things that we're doing, things that we're involved in. And I get some of them are not your fault. You didn't choose them, but yet you're still holding on to the bag. God wants you to let go. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual, and they're all legitimate. God knows them all. He gets it. But if we're not careful, we get to the point where in verse 34, just like Esau, had, he despised his birthright. He had contempt for his birthright. We grow to the same place of despising and having contempt for the very help and hope that God offers to us. See, the bitterness that wells up in the midst of hurt or in the midst of the wounds you carry, they're not just directed at others. We don't allow God to do something with them that only he can do. Eventually, that bitterness turns us where we become bitter towards him. Because the answer to the question, why is this happening to me, never gets an answer that we can accept. Esau's understanding was limited to the moment. He was hungry and he couldn't wait. This is how addiction grabs hold of us. How affairs begin. This is how our health is compromised. How our integrity is thrown away. How faith becomes watered down because we live for the now. Esau's name meant red hairy guy. And that's pretty much all he was. There wasn't much more to him. Jacob's name heel grabber. There's more to the meaning of this name that we will talk about in the weeks to come. But this heel grabber is going to spend his life searching. From the moment he was born, searching for meaning and purpose and full fulfillment. It's going to take him a long time, a number of years. He'll get there. But it takes him a while. His name will eventually be changed. As we talked about earlier today, but he has, still has a lot of searching to do. And as he searches, he drags his bags behind him. Dr. David Busick, one of our superintendents, writes, Jacob was hungering for his own red stuff. He wanted to be loved. Jacob's hungry. He's searching for something. This search will lead him to also show contempt and despise not his birthright, despise his brother. Next week, we'll talk about how he despised his father. In the years to come, he would despise his father-in-law, his wives, and even his sons. You can't despise other people without also, church, despising God. Jacob's grabbing heels his entire life. And the truth is, 
There's a little bit of both of these brothers inside of us. The difference is that Jacob would eventually find grace. He'd eventually allow God to turn those bags, empty them out, and use them for something good. And wherever you might be on your journey, God wants to do the same thing in your life. There's pieces you're going to discover as you're going from place to place. God's going to continue to show up. That's what he does. He's faithful. He's asking you today to let go of your stuff. Let go of your bags. Let go of your hurt. Let go of the wounds. Let go of the mistrust. Let go of the bitterness. Let, let, let go of the anxiousness. Let go of the disappointment. Let go of the discouragement. Let go of, uh, of, of the, the lies that people have said about you. Let, let go of all of that stuff and become who God wants you to be. Who We can only become through his grace. Why? Why did God choose this family? <laughs> Such dysfunction and deceit. So disabled and disgraceful. I think he chose his family on purpose. Because if God can work through broken, flawed people like that, then God can work through someone like me. If God can work through someone like Jacob, then God can work through someone like you. That should give us hope. That, that should be like, okay, Lord, if you can do that there, then you can do it here. If you can do it in his life, you can do it in anyone's life. It's one of the beautiful truths about Jacob that I love, that I see firsthand God work through broken, flawed people. God kept his promises to Abraham. God kept his promise to Isaac. God keeps his promise through Jacob. In spite of us, God still keeps and is keeping his promises today. Beautiful thing we'll discover as we go through this conversation together is in the middle of every one of Jacob's conflicts, God shows up. See, God comes to Jacob. Sometimes I can't get to God because I'm dragging all this stuff behind me. And God knows that, and God comes to you. And maybe God's tapped you on the shoulder today. You so desperately want to wrap your arms around his neck and give him a big old hug, but you can't because you're carrying your stuff. Maybe we could let it go this morning. He knows your name. You're not defined by the stuff you carry. You're defined by what he does in and through us. God is still working through broken our brokenness, our uncertainty, our insecurities, our flaws, our hurts, and our wounds. And just as Jacob was searching, if we would search, grace will find us. God's still showing up and waiting for us to let go of our bags. I invite you to stand with me this morning. And I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and we're going to worship, give you a chance to respond. We sang a song earlier this morning about how it is well. I don't know about you, but I've been asking the Lord to, Lord, I don't want to sing certain songs if, I, if they're not true for me. If this song's not true for you, if it's not well, maybe it's because you're holding on to a few bags. God's just asking you to let them go. If, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you need to kind of this encounter with God and acknowledge the red, red stuff you've been pursuing in your life. God's here to receive that. You've been living for the now, chasing after the things of this world. You said you want to chase after him. He's here. Let it go. You don't have to be weighed down. But God offers hope and freedom, forgiveness, grace. Father, thank you for being a, a God who chases us, who comes to us. The truth is, Lord, if, if we wait till we've got life figured out, till we've got everything the way it should be to come to you, then we're never going to get there. We need you to come after us. In this room, Father, I, I can't begin to imagine the, the weight of the bags that some are carrying. 
Some we, we have to carry. We, we understand we've talked about that, but we carry them with you. If we're carrying them on our own, Lord, those are the ones we need to let go of. God, I believe you're already working and revealing those things to us. For those fathers who are chasing after the things of this world, that red stuff that, that just smells so good, it tastes so good, it looks so enticing, then we have to have, God, would you check our hearts and our spirit, our appetites? Through the help of your spirit, give us self-control, patience, to wait upon you. Speak through the words of this song. Lord, if it's not well, what are we holding on to? Perhaps, Lord, we need to let go of. Worship Him together, church. Grander earthquakes before, moved by the sound of His voice. Seas that are shaken and stirred will be calmed and broken from my
Thank you for who you are, the grace you offer for chasing after us. For Lord, for being that bellhop where nothing that we carry is too much for you. The words of that song, Lord, implore us, help us to let go. The things that we don't need to carry, but chasing after the red stuff of this world. Lord, to embrace the grace that you offer to us become the people defined by and named by you helps others come to who you are thank you jesus for our time together and our time with you and glorify lord in our lives as we go lord as we go i pray we leave a little bit lighter today the things that we've left behind the things that we've given to you in jesus name we pray amen god bless you have a great day